Welcome to Making Art Work, produced by the Arts Administration Program at Lemoyne College in Syracuse, New York. I'm Travis Newton, your host and director of the program. Today's guest is Henry Fogel, a legend in the orchestra management industry. Before managing the New York Philharmonic, National Symphony, and Chicago Symphony, Mr. Fogel got his start in the radio industry right here in Syracuse. After attending Syracuse University, Henry worked for many years as vice president and program director of WONO, honing his encyclopedic knowledge of orchestral repertoire along the way. That knowledge surely came in handy during his ensuing management career as he hired music directors, steered artistic planning efforts, led concert hall renovation efforts, and consulted with orchestras nationwide. Following his tenure with the Chicago Symphony, Mr. Fogel served as president and CEO of the League of American Orchestras, which is the advocacy organization for orchestras nationwide. He currently serves as dean and distinguished professor of the arts at Roosevelt University's Chicago College of Performing Arts. Mr. Fogel's awards and honorary doctorates are too numerous to name, but suffice to say, he's a fixture in the orchestra and arts management industry. Henry Fogel, welcome to Making Art Work. And um, so I wonder if we could kick things off here, since you have such a wealth of experience in the arts management industry, specifically orchestra management, what makes a good arts manager? That's a really good question, and it's one I get asked by young people who are thinking of getting into the field um, of arts administration. And if I were forced to choose a single word, and it's obviously more than this, but this is essential it's empathy, and people sometimes mistake that and confuse it with sympathy. It has nothing to do with sympathy. Empathy means being able to understand the point of view of people whose point of view is different from yours and figure out a way to marry differences in the arts between the business people who are on the board of trustees, between the artists who themselves don't always agree you are always um, addressed by a range of viewpoints on virtually every subject. And so you need to have the ability to not just hear the positions people are taking, but understand why they're taking those positions. And if you can't give them what they're asking for, can you think of something else to give them that will satisfy or can you at least understand why they feel as they do and come up with an, a, a piece of evidence or a fact that might get them to think differently? So that certainly is an important trait. And the second is a thick skin. <laughs> you're going to be criticized. You're going to be criticized by musicians, by artists, by board members, by donors, and you can't let it get to you. You absolutely cannot let it get to you. If you do, you're dead. And... How many years did it take you to develop that thick skin? I'm very lucky. I was born with it. Okay. I don't know. I really, I mean, I, I learned it. I learned to thicken it, but I've always had, and, uh, you know, I guess you could call it either self-confidence or if you don't like it, arrogance. I've always had enough self-confidence that I never, if somebody said something bad about me, I have always had the ability, first of all, to say, are they right? And do I need to work on this? Or are they wrong? In which case, I need to ignore it. <laughs> and, and it's very important. I had one serious problem when I got into orchestra management, and that was due to the fact that I spent 15 years running a radio station 
in which virtually all of my talking was one way. Right. It was sitting in a room and talking into a microphone. It wasn't conversation. Right. And when I got to the New York Philharmonic, where I was the orchestra manager, the person in charge of operations under the executive director, mm -hmm. after about six months, he, he called me into his office and he said, you know, you're really smart and you're really good and you're, you're doing a terrific job. There's one problem. You don't listen. You talk, but you don't listen. You don't listen at meetings. You cut people off. And you really need to learn how to listen to people. And I took that to heart because it was true. And I actually thought, and I said, oh, my goodness, you're right, and I know why. For 15 years, I was on the air 50 to 60 hours a week. We didn't have a big staff. And I sat in a room and talked. And dead air is a bad thing. And I, silence is a bad thing, so I would fill every silence. So I worked on it, and it took a year or two to work on it. But criticism that is constructive is helpful, but criticism that isn't. I mean, I had a donor to the Chicago Symphony who said, you're the worst thing that ever happened to the Chicago Symphony. Well, that was because she wanted Claudio Abato to be the next music director, and I ran a process that engaged Daniel Barenboim, and she was mad at me. But you can't let that get to you. And I just have had, I have a temperament that it didn't. Well, that's, that comes in handy, I'm sure. Um, speaking of listening and not talking, you know, it's funny you should bring that up. I was reading an article in the Washington Post about the Atlanta Symphony lockout that's happening right now. And Deborah Rudder, who's now running the Kennedy Center, was previously running Chicago after you left Chicago, was quoted as saying if she had one bit of advice for the parties involved, she would say, listen, don't talk. And so that seems to be a, a common sort of mantra for successful negotiations. Has that served you well in negotiations in orchestra, you know, with, with labor, labor issues in orchestras? Yes. Um, I've actually been a mediator in strikes. I've been asked to mediate strikes, which you can only be asked if both sides want you. And, in fact, sometimes it's been the musicians who've asked for me. Uh, but the management has accepted me. There have been a couple of cases where the musicians asked for me and the management did not because I was seen as too musician-friendly. I wear that as a badge of honor. Yes, as but, well you should. Um, but I've had, I think, seven or eight times. Currently, I'm doing some consulting work with the Jacksonville Symphony, but I started there in a mediating role. And it is so important to listen and understand what, people are saying and why they're saying it. Do, do I have a minute for a story? That Absolutely. I, that this, I think, identifies when you talk about what do I mean by, by understanding and by empathy. When we renovated Orchestra Hall, we, it was a, going to be a more than $100 million project in Chicago. Right. And we put together from our board and very largest groups of donors, we put together different task forces to quote, oversee different parts of the project. Now, professionals could have done everything, except these were the people who were going to have to give or raise $100 million. You need them to feel that it was their project, not Henry Fogel's. So the biggest donors were on the most important task force, which was the main concert hall task force. Then we had some for office spaces and backstage spaces and donor spaces and so forth. 
Inside the main hall, for those people who don't know Orchestra Hall in Chicago, there's a main floor. Then there are some a whole, the next level up are boxes, and they're extraordinary. The seats are loose. There's room between them. Each box has a coat closet. Then there's a balcony, and then there's a gallery. Um, the hall was built in 1904. It sounds kind of old, but I can make it sound older. That's seven <laughs> years after the death of Brahms. Right. And it had never been really renovated. Well, among other things, people have gotten bigger. True. <laughs> the seats were too narrow, but even worse, the leg room. The leg room was worse than the economy section on most airlines right. on the balcony. So I believed it was critical to expand the leg room. That meant, if I didn't want to lose a row of seats, it meant extending the front of the balcony and giving it two to three more inches between rows, which in turn meant extending the front of the boxes under the balcony so the balcony didn't overhang more than the boxes. All of the people on this task force <coughs> were fighting with me once they found out that this construction, just this part of the project, would cost about $1.5 million. And they're all sitting there saying, you know, the balcony is actually almost completely sold out because it is the best sound in the hall. So people are willing to accept it. And I kept saying, well, people have been willing to accept it because it is what it is. You spend $100 million to renovate the hall and they're still uncomfortable. <laughs> they're not likely to accept it. They might continue to buy tickets because that's the only place they can hear the orchestra. However, 50% of our subscribers are also donors, and I think they're going to be really mad. And this room full of very smart people were all disagreeing with me. And I'm trying to figure out why. And I suddenly realized every single one of them sat in the boxes. Ah. They didn't know. They didn't have they the didn't fact have the base. They didn't have the empathy for the others. They didn't have the fact. Well, it's not that they didn't have the empathy. They didn't know. They knew that Henry said it was too, that there was no leg room. But they didn't know what that really meant. Right. And I immediately, I said, before you make this decision, which I have told you I disagree with, mm -hmm. I want to adjourn this meeting from our conference room to our balcony because I think you need to at least see what the balcony is like. Right. It took 90 seconds to get the right decision as soon as they went up there. They got in and went, oh, oh my God, oh, he's right. This is terrible. But because they didn't have that fact, all they had was Henry saying, it's uncomfortable. And they weren't going to spend a million and a half dollars to fix it. My recognition that it wasn't that they were stupid, it wasn't that they were pig-headed, sure. it's that they didn't have a piece of knowledge. What's the easiest way to give them that piece of knowledge? Well, very simple, put them up to the balcony. And I got the right, there's literally 90 seconds it took. And I don't even think it would have taken that many. They sat down and they went, oh, it's terrible. No. This we have to do. So it became a no-brainer at that it's point. A, it, yeah. It's, it's, I use that as an example for people of what, when I say empathy, I mean my, the, my empathetic sense of what it was that I knew that these people didn't know, rather than, and I've seen managers fall prey to this, these people are just being stupid. They right. weren't being stupid. They didn't have a fact. Sure. Give them the fact. Give them more data to work with. Exactly. So you're talking about getting the perspectives of others, yep. all of these various constituencies that you need to be able to work with, 
the board, the musicians, the staff. Mm-hmm. Is running an orchestra or running an arts organization sort of like running for office or being a politician in a way? In some ways, absolutely. Um, I don't know. I mean, I have never actually been a politician. Um, (laughs) And there's a level of public exposure there that I don't think I or my family would be comfortable with. Um, And I think in public life, there are probably even more compromises that you have to make. Sure. You know, I've just just recently been advising a board. I won't even identify it, but there there's it's an orchestra that was in a music director search, and their biggest donor was pushing a candidate to be the next conductor. And in the end, they said, "No, you know, we're going to do a search. We're going to hire the best conductor." Go through the process. But that's the kind of thing in politics that you might not be able to avoid, and that right. would trouble me a lot. Right. I've seen you quoted in the past comparing sports to the arts and saying that keeping track of statistics in the arts is far less clear-cut than in, say, baseball. Can you talk about that? Um, you know, how do, we, how do we measure ourselves? How do we measure things? And, and what kinds of statistics can we use in the arts and specifically with orchestras? That's a really good question. Well, thank you. You, you ask really good <laughs> questions. I, I actually resent the idea that people try to say, who's the greatest pianist today? Mm-hmm. Which is the greatest orchestra today? Because it isn't like sports. At the end of the season, the team that won 94 games when everybody else in their division won 92 is the greatest that year. Right. It's defined. For that snapshot of time. It's it's defined. Um how would you even begin to define what makes a great orchestra? Um, is it ensemble? Is it intonation? Is it that they play with passion? Is it that they play with conviction? And all the 18 years that I was uh, the president of the Chicago Symphony, I never said nor allowed us to say, we are the greatest orchestra in America. And when anybody said it to me, I said, I would rather say we are one of America's great orchestras. Mm-hmm. Um, Now, that doesn't mean that you can't talk about differences and that there aren't levels. Of course there are levels. Um, But when you get to a certain level, taste comes into play. Is it great on this night under this conductor? Is it great in all repertoire? Sure. Um, You know, I think that the Chicago Symphony, certainly before... Abato and and maybe even before Rattle got there, the Chicago Symphony is a better orchestra in music of the second half of the 20th century and beginning of the 21st century than the Berlin Philharmonic. Mm-hmm. But I don't necessarily think it was a greater orchestra than Berlin in a Brahms Symphony. Mm-hmm. Um, you you there are so many variables, so many variants. So I think that. It's important to use one's ears. It's important to use one's own musical taste and to say, are we as good an orchestra, if we're talking about an orchestra specifically, are we as good an orchestra as this city could possibly have? And, you know, one of the tragedies to me and very sad to me is the the death of the Syracuse Symphony. I'm delighted that it's trying to come back now as Symphoria and I wish them the best. But it was, for many years, a remarkably good orchestra for a city of this size. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And on that topic, you know, Symphoria obviously has a different business model um, than than the Syracuse Symphony. It operates as a co-op. Um, and so as you've learned about the new effort here in the new orchestra, what have you observed? What are your What are your thoughts? Well, I wish I knew more about it, uh, and I hope that I will have that opportunity. There is a good model for a co-op orchestra in America. It's the Louisiana Philharmonic mm-hmm. in New Orleans, which is exactly like Symphoria in that it rose out of the ashes of the old New Orleans uh, Philharmonic. I, The thing that concerns me is in American orchestras now, the largest source of revenue is not ticket sales. Right. It's contributions. <coughs> Sorry. Um, in the normal uh, orchestra budget right now, 35, if you're really, really good, 40%, but more normal, 35 to 37% of the entire budget comes from earned revenue. Right. Which is ticket sales, basically. Ticket sales, basically, for bigger orchestras, it's tour fees. Mm -hmm. For orchestras like Symphoria, it might be fees that somebody engages them for a concert. Sure. Um, If you have an endowment and it's big enough, 10 to 15% of your budget comes from the income and earnings from the endowment. And then 50, 55, maybe even 60% comes from annual fund contributions. It's very hard to get that in a situation where the people with that kind of money in a community are not the governing board because people like to control money when they're giving the money or raising the money. And that's been the problem. Now, they've, they have had it work in New Orleans, so I have some hopes for it. I hope that there will be people of means in the city who will support uh, Symphoria. And uh, I think it, I mean, at this point, it's an experiment. Uh, and there aren't a lot of models. There are, there are a number of orchestras that are run by musicians and co-ops, but they're not orchestras that are meant to be the main uh, living of their musicians. I mean, there's a wonderful orchestra in New York called the Knights, mm. um, which is entirely musician-run and uh, has some very interesting philosophies and imaginative programming, and they do things like rehearse as long as they feel they need to rehearse rather than a strict uh, two-and-a-half-hour rehearsal with a 20-minute break. Um, But they're all New York freelance musicians who make, I would say, 70 or 80 percent of their money playing in the various freelance orchestras in New York, and then they get together to do this. There's one in Cleveland called Red and Orchestra. Right and Orchestra X in Houston. But these are secondary jobs for those musicians. And what you want to see, while maybe nobody will make 100% of their living from the orchestra in Syracuse, you probably would be a goal that it be the primary source of income for those musicians. And that's where I hope they get. So I think we all do, um, because, of course, the more they play together... The better they play together, and okay. the better the orchestra gets, and, and it's a wonderful thing as, as much as they can perform and rehearse together. Um, and so, thinking beyond sort of the business model and how you know how the expenses are accounted for and how the revenue is accounted for, this idea that a co-op brings to the table of the musicians and the artists within the organization really 
leading the organization and having a whole lot of skin in the game, first of all, but also being invested not only in terms of their finances, but in terms of their lives and their, you know, emotionally and every other way, they're invested in this organization. Do you see that as something that um, is sort of infiltrating even larger, sort of more, if you want to call them legacy-type institutions where the artists are taking a leadership role? It's beginning to. It's so slow. And again, it's a very interesting question that you ask because I think it was in 1992, I'm not sure, I wrote an article in a magazine called Harmony, Mm -hmm. um, which was part of something called the Symphony Orchestra Institute. It's now part of Polyphony, I think, housed at the Eastman School. You can actually find the article online. It's called... The three-legged stool are three legs enough. I've read the article. It's, you have. It's okay. A good one. The classic definition of the structure of an orchestra is the three-legged stool, i.e., the music director, the executive director, and the chair of the board. Mm-hmm. And my question was, where's the fourth leg, which is the musicians? Right. And I tried to make the case that we had to bring them in. You wouldn't run a hospital without input at a high level, including the board, of doctors. Correct. Administrators would not solely run a hospital. You would not run a university without faculty representation in a serious and meaningful way on the board and in the policy setting at the university. And I know that now for a fact because I'm at a university. Mm -hmm. But we've run orchestras with very little input from the artists whose lives are at the core of it. Now, I wrote that in the early 90s. I got a lot of criticism from some of my management colleagues. But what's depressing is I also saw criticism from musicians. Mm. And at the Chicago Symphony, I tried to put my money where my mouth was. We offered the orchestra four seats on the board of directors to be elected by the musicians and two of them on the executive committee of the board. And they turned it down. They said, it's our job to play the notes. It's your job to raise the money. And part of it is, I'm sorry to say, musicians' reluctance to take the risk of making a decision and maybe being wrong. Part of it is they don't have the training, and I understand that. And I'm sad to say part of it is, you know, if we're part of making decisions, then we're not free to criticize them. But for whatever reason... The musicians have looked at attempts to bring them in as an attempt to co-opt them, to take away their power. And sadly, there are some orchestra boards that have done that. They've said, all right, we're going to cut your salary, but now we'll put some of you on the board. And those two should never go at the same time. However, more and more of the younger generation of musicians are beginning to see things differently. Very important to remember, and I'm I'm sorry to ramble on, no, but it's this fine. is a fascinating subject to me. What seems like ancient history in terms of the way musicians were treated before the 1960s, when George Sell or Fritz Reiner could look at you and fire you on the spot, mm-hmm. and and could abuse you, and could 
at will extend a rehearsal into overtime, you may get paid for it, but if you had a student waiting for a lesson at home or in your studio, you were stuck in that hall right. and there was no warning. I mean, musicians were terribly treated until the early 60s when the union got much stronger on their behalf. Well, one of the problems is, particularly in the large legacy orchestras, it's only in the last three or four years that the last of those musicians have retired. They were in it, and the next generation was taught by that generation, and they inherited some of that feeling about management. Um, the Chicago Symphony was one of the very first orchestras in America to elect its own orchestra committee in 1961 or two or three, early 60s. They elected their committee to negotiate a contract. You know what the stupid board did? They fired them. Hmm. Now, the firing got overturned immediately by the NLRB, and they had to hire them back. But that was the attitude of the board at that time. These people are going to be union rabble-rousers. We'll fire them. Well, one of the ones who was fired was in the orchestra through my entire tenure as manager all the way till 2003. He retired the year after I left. So it's not ancient history generations removed. This guy... He actually said to me once, you know, Henry, for a manager, you're not bad. <laughs> high praise. But uh, High praise, but, it, but the, the anger that was still there in that. So there are a lot of – and that tradition, as I say, is handed down in the teaching studio. Sure. So it's now the under 35 and 40 musicians who are beginning to think differently. I think we've got to get musicians involved in thinking about – how orchestras are run, uh, what the, how we, you know, part of the problem is we need to think about redefining the concert experience. Should it always be a two-and-a-half-hour event in the evening? Right. Can we do shorter concerts? Well, how do we, how do, we do that with, a, with the work contract that we have now that is very rigid? Sure. We have a work contract that says an orchestra service is two, and a half, two hours and 15 minutes, or if it's a rehearsal, two hours and 30 minutes with a 20-minute break, and you don't have anything called a one-hour service. And so there's that problem. There's the problem for the big orchestras like the Chicago Symphony that you are paid to play in a symphony orchestra a f full orchestra. So, if the, and, you, and there are 105 players guaranteed a 52-week payroll, okay? You do an all-Mozart concert. Daniel Barenboim used to do one a year where he played three Mozart concertos and conducted from the keyboard. I had 60 players not playing in that concert. Sure. Okay? I couldn't use them for anything else without paying them extra. They were getting their salary. No split orchestra. No right. split orchestra, no chamber group, no group into a school without extra payment. Well, and so you talk about, you know, the, the new generation of musicians that are coming through. Uh, there also seems to be a new generation of managers coming through. And sure. one of the things that you're working on, of course, is running the, uh, the new performing arts administration program at Roosevelt. And so... Um, we're actually going to – we've run out of time for this segment, but I wonder if you would stick around for a couple minutes and we can talk a little bit more about that on the sure. other side. Thanks, Henry. Making Art Work is produced by the Arts Administration Program at Lemoyne College in Syracuse, New York, with support provided by the Department of Communication and Film Studies and WLMU Radio, as well as our broadcast partner, WCNY Classic FM. 
Our theme song was written by Lemoyne College Music faculty member Edward Rahowski and performed by the Bang on a Can All-Stars. For more information about arts administration at Lemoyne, visit lemoyne.edu slash artsadmin or follow us on Twitter at LMCArtsADMN. I'm your host, Travis Newton, hoping you'll join us again next time on Making Art Work. <laughs>